Hello world, it's Alex and I'm back with another episode of Reading for Your Life. As I record this, the world is under social isolation orders due to COVID-19. There's a lot of uncertainty out there, but I want to urge everyone to take the warning seriously and stay at home as much as possible. It's a great time to catch up on your reading and you'll be keeping yourselves and a lot of other people safe. This month, I want to share a book by Atul Gawande called Being Mortal. Atul Gawande is a doctor, author, and public health advocate. Now settle in, because it's going to take a minute to go through all his accolades. Since 1998, he's been a staff writer at The New Yorker. He's a general and endocrine surgeon at Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston, which is one of Harvard's teaching hospitals. He's a part-time professor at Harvard's T.H. Chan School of Public Health and Harvard Medical School. He's CEO of Haven, the Amazon Berkshire Hathaway, J.P. Morgan Chase joint venture for healthcare innovation. He's the founder and chairman of Adrian Labs, a joint venture between Brigham and Women's Hospital and Harvard Medical School to improve healthcare outcomes by applying testable, scalable solutions to healthcare challenges. He's also chairman of Lifebox, an NGO dedicated to creating conditions for safer surgeries in under-resourced communities across the globe. He's the winner of a MacArthur Fellowship, Academy Health's Impact Award for Highest Research Impact on Healthcare, and a Lewis Thomas Award for Writing About Science. He's given a TED Talk, been interviewed everywhere from The Daily Show to The Freakonomics Podcast to CBS This Morning. But it's his writing that we're most interested in here, because in addition to all of that, Atul Gawande has written four New York Times bestsellers, Checklist Manifesto, Complications, Better, and Being Mortal. With all of those accolades, Dr. Gawande is one of those individuals that I'm always surprised that people may not have heard of. To be honest, I first came across him by accident. Several years ago, I was working in a marketing department that supported our company's trade shows and events. We had decided to attend an industry event for hospital executives, and without knowing who it would be, we agreed to sponsor the keynote speaker. As we got closer to the event, Dr. Gawande was announced as the speaker, and we were asked to provide introductory remarks for our CEO to introduce him at the main event. That task fell to me, and after a little Googling, I found Dr. Gawande's book, Checklist Manifesto. That's not what this episode's about, so just really quick, it's a book about the power of process. I'm not normally one for process and organization, but in the surgical suite, checklists are used to ensure that all the various sponges and tools are accounted for, and those checklists dramatically reduce surgical complications. All it takes is a nurse in the OR to be appointed keeper of the list, and it's like a light switch flips. You suddenly start seeing better outcomes. Pilots using pre-flight checklists see a lot of the same benefit. So in Checklist Manifesto, Dr. Gawande shows the power of understanding and establishing a process. Now, ever since then, I've read everything that Dr. Gawande has released. His writing is exceptionally honest, clear, and informative, and every one of his books will leave you with great lessons. But it's the most recent book that we want to talk about today. The subtitle to Being Mortal is Illness, Medicine, and What Matters at the End. Now, you may already know this, but our society is getting older, much older. In the next 20 years, adults over 65 are projected to outnumber kids for the first time in U.S. history. That's a new trend for us, but it's already been happening in other parts of the world for a while. In Japan, about a quarter of adults are already over 65, and the population shrinking. The same thing is happening in France, Spain, Germany, Italy, and much of Eastern Europe. According to a UN report on the aging world population, the number of people over 60 in the year 2017 was more than twice as large as in 1980 and it's set to double again by 2050. Now, I guess that statistic is shocking in the sense that a major change in the way our society looks is happening under our feet, 
But in being mortal, Atul Gawani discovers that there's something even more shocking happening. Despite having more older adults than ever before, despite the fact that they make up a larger percentage of our population than ever before, and despite the fact that aging is nature's most inevitable outcome, we as a society are not prepared to grow old and die. For most of human history, people died at home cared for by family. In the 17th century, poor houses or almshouses became a central means of caring for people who couldn't care for themselves. Local municipalities would establish farm communities for the elderly, children, and people with disabilities. These facilities were maintained through community donations and mostly existed outside of any formal regulatory structure. As a result, the conditions in these facilities would be considered barbaric by today's standards. Because poverty was considered a moral failing, these facilities took a very different approach to care of their residents than we'd accept today. In Connecticut, for instance, residents were whipped ten times when they came to the almshouse. Able-bodied residents were often required to provide labor on the working farms surrounding the poorhouses. Residents with mental disabilities might be confined to a single room, forced to wear a straitjacket, or even chained to a wall. Even people with family or the resources to care for themselves after their working life was over would often run out of money as the final infirmities of old age set in. This sent many elderly people to poorhouses for the care at the end of their lives. Two major changes in the law in the U.S. helped end the scourge of poorhouses. The first was the passage of Social Security in 1935. The act passed as part of FDR's New Deal legislation, and opposition to the act would sound familiar to anyone who follows politics today. Several senators called the act and the president himself socialist, and suggested that passage of the act was giving into a socialist infestation of our government. Lawsuits soon followed the passage and made their way to the Supreme Court. Cases like Stewart Machine Co. v. Davis and Helvering v. Davis questioned the constitutionality of Social Security. But wins meant that the Social Security Act was soon enshrined in American culture to such an extent that by 1982, just around 50 years after the act passed originally, Tip O'Neill, then the Speaker of the House, called Social Security the third rail of American politics. If you touch it, you die. The establishment of Social Security helped the elderly manage independence longer, but it still wasn't enough for the sudden declines that many people saw near the end of life, when significant care was suddenly required. Most individuals ended up in hospitals, but of course, hospitals weren't big enough or staffed to provide round-the-clock care to patients for months or years on end. The solution came in 1954 when hospitals lobbied for government funds to expand centers of care specifically for patients who required longer recovery times. This was the origin of the nursing home. The intention was to help clear out hospital beds and provide nursing care to people who couldn't care for themselves for an extended period of time. Dr. Gawande points out that these facilities were never built specifically for end-of-life care, but that's what they became. Conditions in nursing homes varied widely, so in 1965, President LBJ signed the Social Security Amendments Act, establishing Medicare and Medicaid. Medicare was a special government-provided insurance for people over 65. To qualify for Medicare payments, the law stipulated that healthcare facilities had to meet certain care and quality standards. But concerns soon arose when hospitals said that they couldn't meet those standards and therefore wouldn't be able to accept the insurance coverage for elderly patients. That meant that people in rural or poorer communities would not be able to receive care at their local facilities. The Bureau of Health Insurance issued a ruling that if a facility remained in substantial compliance, they could still qualify for Medicare payments. But here's the problem. Substantial compliance is a jargon term, meaning that they just didn't meet the requirements. The Merriam-Webster's Dictionary of Law gives this definition for substantial compliance. 
compliance with the substantial or essential requirements of something, as a statute or contract, that satisfies its purpose or objective even though its normal requirements are not complied with. In other words, if a facility complied with the essence of the regulations, whatever that means, and showed efforts to move into full compliance, they could skate by. By the 1970s, some 13,000 nursing homes were built across the country, some maintaining substantial compliance without adequate nursing staff or fire safety protections. Dr. Gawande gives an example of a nursing home near his hometown in Ohio where 32 residents were killed in a fire. Another example comes from Baltimore where a salmonella outbreak killed 36 residents. Now things have definitely improved, but if you look for examples of substandard care and abuse in nursing homes, it's not hard to find more recent cases. In mid-February 2020, an LPN in Michigan was charged with pushing an elderly female resident to the ground, causing a head wound. In Tomball, Texas, a woman placed a hidden camera in her mother's room to record verbal and physical abuse at the hands of a caretaker. And a five-month investigation by a nonprofit news organization called Fair Warning revealed startling risks in food safety in nursing homes across the country. In 2019, around a third of nursing homes were cited for violating food safety requirements. In a 10-year period, 230 outbreaks of foodborne illnesses occurred in long-term care facilities, causing over 7,000 individuals to become sick, resulting in 500 hospitalizations and more than 50 deaths. And according to data from the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Studies, food safety was only the third most cited type of violation for nursing homes, coming behind infection control issues and patient accidents. Dr. Gowani makes an observation that startled me when I first read it. These places, where over half of us will spend a year or more of our lives, were never truly made for us. Most of us live our lives seeking some kind of meaning. Whether that comes from our family or our careers, we value the independence to pursue the things that we care about. But when we age, we come to a phase where our independence begins to become more limited. Whether that's from being sick or simply the limitations of aging, physical and mental, we slowly come to require more support. But our desire for meaning doesn't disappear. We don't suddenly lose our curiosity or need for social interaction. Because the systems and facilities we've built around aging are primarily focused on medical treatment and providing care for the body, it's no surprise that the life of the elderly can become miserable. Someone who lived with a spouse for years may be told they can't share a bed once they move into a nursing home. Or someone used to having their own home and space may be told they now have to share a room with a stranger and have limited private space. Dr. Gawande tells the story of a resident who moved into a care facility and was forced to reduce their personal items from a houseful to what would fit into a single cabinet. These facilities, meant to provide long-term care, then become not places where humans go to complete a final stage of life with dignity, but hospital rooms that you can never check out of. Here's a quote from Chapter 3 that captures it perfectly. This is the consequence of a society that faces the final phase of the human life cycle by trying not to think about it. We end up with institutions that address any number of societal goals, from freeing up hospital beds to taking the burden off of families' hands to cope with poverty among the elderly, but never the goal that matters most to the people who reside in them, how to make life worth living when we're weak and frail and can't fend for ourselves anymore. So if we stick with that thought, what's important to people living out this life stage, we need to talk a little bit about mindset. No matter what age they are, there's something very consistent about how most people approach the news of the end of their life. We suddenly become extreme optimists. Dr. Gawadi talks about a tendency to interpret the idea of survival in overly positive ways. Someone receives a cancer diagnosis or is told that they have a blockage in their heart. A treatment's recommended and the doctor says something along the lines of, I really like your chances if this procedure is successful. 
the patient hears that and thinks, well, great, on the other side of this scary and maybe painful experience, I can expect years and maybe decades of good health. Except that's not really what the doctor means. Dr. Gawande shares the story of his own father's cancer diagnosis throughout the book, from the earliest stages to the eventual end. At one point, the family is sitting with an oncologist who's recommending an aggressive round of chemotherapy and treatment. The disease has already taken a toll on Dr. Gawande's father, who is also a doctor, and the entire experience has been incredibly difficult for the family, who combined share over 100 years of medical experience. The oncologist remarks that if all goes well, Dr. Gawande's father might be back playing tennis in a few months, to which Dr. Gawande balks. He asks the doctor how long his father might have without treatment. The answer, somewhere between three months and three years. And with treatment? The doctor's hesitant to ask at first, but finally admits, probably not much longer than three years. Dr. Gawande's father suddenly faces a very hard truth. Because when he'd thought about treatment being successful, his mindset shifted back to long-term thinking. He'd be back to his normal self. He'd regain his independence and put the entire experience of cancer in the rearview mirror, living out the normal span of his days as if nothing had happened at all. Except that wasn't reality. The best-case scenario that the doctor was describing still sounded like an awfully short amount of time. Here's a stat that I almost wish I'd never heard. A study by sociologist Nicholas Christakis found that 63% of doctors overestimated their terminally ill patient survival time. The average estimate was more than 500% too high. If there isn't a clear discussion about reality, it may even be hard for someone facing the final phase of their life to recognize what's really happening. And in that case, the patient can't reasonably be expected to make decisions about what course of treatment to pursue, how much pain and suffering, how long of a recovery might be worth it. This has led to an overwhelming amount of care centered on prolonging life just at the end. According to the book, 25% of Medicare spending is focused on only 5% of patients who are in their final year of life. And most of that money is focused on patients in their final few months, for many of whom the treatments do little, if anything, to prolong their time. I'm reminded of an episode of the podcast Hidden Brain. In the episode titled The Ventilator, linked in the description, we hear the story of the incredibly difficult choices that we face at the end of our lives. A nurse who'd spent more than her fair share of time alongside dying patients was adamant to her husband that she never wanted to be put on a ventilator. You probably heard a lot about ventilators lately, but if you don't know, a ventilator is essentially life support. A tube is fed into the windpipe and a machine is able to push oxygen-rich air into the lungs and then draw out the carbon dioxide waste gas. There are plenty of applications for ventilators. In fact, I've been on one in the past year. If you've ever been knocked out for any type of surgery, you've likely been on a ventilator. But another common application is to assist breathing when the body has become too weak to breathe on its own. In the case in point, our nurse developed ALS, a neurological disease that affects the spine and brain. Over time, the disease robs the patient of muscle strength until normal activity becomes impossible. ALS patients eventually find themselves with less and less control over their motor functions, to the point that assisted breathing via a ventilator is common. Now, in this story, our nurse finds herself in the hospital having extreme difficulty breathing. A respiratory therapist comes into the room and asks her if she wants to be ventilated. Now, the husband knows the answer to the question and maintains, even now, years later, that had they asked him, he would have said, of course not, and asked for hospice to help his wife find as much comfort before the end as possible. But instead, she said yes. And what follows is heart-wrenching 
for her and for her family, the physical pain of being ventilated, the declining quality of life, it was hard for the nurse. It was hard for her husband and for her children. Extraordinary efforts were made to give her a little bit more time, even though she herself knew the agony of prolonging life only through technology, but the fear of dying was too great. But what if there was another way? In Anne Boyer's The Undying, she tells the story of her own battle with breast cancer, her experience of chemotherapy, and her struggles with the idea of mortality. In it, she suggests that every person with a body should receive a guide to dying as soon as they are born. If there's one universal constant in the world, it is that this too shall pass. You and I will both die one day. That's a fact. The time and circumstances may be unpredictable, but we can be assured that we will all meet the same ultimate fate. Why then are we so afraid to talk about it? Dr. Gawande talks about a Latin text called Ars Moriendi, or The Art of Dying. These texts date back to the 1400s and describe how to die well. The tradition continues with books like Being Mortal and Paul Kalanithi's When Breath Becomes Air. People at the end of their life are still people. That means they need more than pills and an hourly turning in their hospital bed. When we face the end of our life, especially when we face it supported in the right ways, we live and die better. In a study at the University of Minnesota, elderly patients were randomly assigned to a team of healthcare providers specializing in geriatrics. The rest were treated through their normal care providers. Within a year and a half, both groups experienced the same 10% mortality rate, but those who'd worked with the geriatric specialists were a quarter less likely to become disabled, half as likely to develop depression, and were 40% less likely to require home health services. Multiple studies have concluded that terminally ill patients who received access to specialists in palliative care, a branch of medicine focused on managing pain and the conditions of long-term illness, experienced higher quality of life near the end. In a study conducted at Massachusetts General Hospital, terminally ill cancer patients with access to palliative care support stopped chemotherapy earlier, entered hospice sooner, and lived 25% longer. It may be no surprise that patients who focused on the quality of life near the end experienced higher quality of life, but they also lived longer than patients who pursued more aggressive treatments to stay alive. In Medicare studies, patients who enter hospice sooner, meaning that they have structured palliative care support at the end of their life, actually live longer. Hospice is sometimes described as giving up or admitting defeat, but in fact, patients in hospice experience the same average mortality as patients who don't use the service. And in some cases, like lung cancer or congestive heart failure patients, hospice users gain weeks or even months of time on average. What that means is that there are ways to live slightly longer, but much more importantly, live much, much better at the end of our life. One important step is to be prepared for difficult questions that you'll face. To illustrate the power of the right conversations at the right time, the book gives the example of La Crosse, Wisconsin. Despite average levels of obesity and smoking, patients in La Crosse live about a year longer on average and spend about half as much time in the hospital. An ICU doctor at the hospital points to a very specific set of questions that make all the difference. In 1991, the local medical community began asking anyone admitted to a hospital, nursing home, or long-term care center four questions as part of their standard intake. Number one, do you want to be resuscitated if your heart stops? Two, do you want aggressive treatments such as intubation and mechanical ventilation? Three, do you want antibiotics? 
Number four, do you want a tube or intravenous feeding if you can't eat on your own? At the beginning, only about 15% of patients had answered those questions for their doctors, but within five years, more than 80% had. The answers themselves were useful to doctors in worst-case scenarios, but the act of answering those questions ensured that patients and spouses and other family members had had to have difficult conversations about end-of-life care, which reduced the demand for extraordinary interventions at the end. Dr. Gowadi says that there are two kinds of courage required to confront aging and death. The first is the courage to confront the reality of mortality, and the second is the courage to act on the truth that we find. Patients and healthcare providers must have honest conversations, and we each have to have honest conversations with our families, because that alignment can make all the difference when the hard decisions have to be made. The second important step is to remember our well-being as we age. Dr. Gawande concludes that medicine is about more than health and survival. It's also about the life that the patient will live outside of the examination room. Our lifespans are wildly variable. According to James Valpel, a longevity researcher at the Max Planck Institute, only about 3% of how long you'll live is based on your parents' lifespan versus a 90% correlation for your and your parents' heights. Among identical twins, the average age gap at death is more than 15 years, so it's not DNA. As we age, a complex series of interactions happen throughout our bodies. The actual pigment cells in our scalps don't last that long, and stem cells below the surface of the skin can move in and help keep up the job until those two are depleted. So by the age of 50, about 50% of us will have mostly gray hair. A waste removal process in our skin causes accumulations that appear as age spots and block up sweat glands. With less ability to sweat and cool our bodies, we're more susceptible to overheating as we age. The lenses of our eyes lose elasticity and cloud over, resulting in a statistic that shocked me. The retina of a healthy 20-year-old receives more than 60% more light than the retina of a 60-year-old. Our sense of balance can decline, and changes in musculature and bone density mean that falls become more common and much more devastating. Even our brains change. The average 30-year-old's brain weighs about 3 pounds and fits snugly into their skull. By the time you're 70, there's about an inch of spare room, which means both a loss in real gray matter and a much higher likelihood of brain trauma. If your brain has room to move around, there is a much greater risk of bleeding and bruising. Processing speed and memory degrade, and by the time that we're 80, around 40% of us can be diagnosed with dementia. Sad to say, that's coming for us, all of us. And as we talked about at the beginning of the episode, it's coming to a larger percentage of people across the globe than ever before. So how can we build a world and make personal plans for our own well-being as we age? Dr. Gawande showcases an array of solutions helping people pursue their own well-being and live with dignity as they age. Most of us want to remain social. We want to remain useful and engaged. We may have hobbies or work that are still important. We still want the dignity of privacy and self-determination. Pioneers in the space have experimented with introducing pets at nursing homes and requiring nurses to have patients' permission to enter living quarters. Others have built their own support system, relying on Uber for transportation after giving up their car and signing up for community groups that ensure that they have local support. Being Mortal was originally published in 2014, but were it released today, we'd likely see mentions of Amazon's Alexa and automatic pill dispensers that can help people stay connected and independent for longer. In the end, whether you're caring for an older loved one or thinking about your own aging and mortality, which is definitely something we should all be doing, 
it's important to remember what's important at the end. We are more than our health, and our lives are measured in much more than years. The system in place today was not built for the realities of aging and dying. And even with the influx of older people that we see around the world, most likely, that system's not going to be ready to answer the most difficult questions for us anytime soon. It's important that we each think about what matters the most to us. Dr. Gawande tells the story of a patient who was asked what quality of life he wanted to preserve. His answer was sitting on the couch to watch football and to eat ice cream. Any intervention that would leave him in a state where he could do those two things was fine by him. So when complications developed during his surgery, his daughter had an easy time understanding what should and should not be done. What's important to you? Once we answer that question, it's up to us to build our world around those important things. Remember that you too will age. Your eyes will grow dim and your balance will falter. Every second of every day, our bodies move through the world rebuilding themselves cell by cell until eventually they just can't. Save for retirement, go to the doctor, watch your weight, think about your diet. Those questions become more and more important as we age, and being ready to face the inevitable can help us plan ahead and adjust when the time is right. And with the right planning, I hope we all live a long and happy life. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of Reading for Your Life. In April, I'll share Ray Kurzweil's The Singularity is Near. We'll look at the breakneck pace of technological change and what it could mean for our world. If you liked this episode, please subscribe to the podcast or drop me a line on social media at Alex P. Acton on Instagram and Twitter. Tell me your thoughts, what you've decided is most important in your life, or recommend a book that's taught you something important. You can also keep up with future shows at Modern Polymaths on Twitter and Modern Polymaths Media on Facebook. Until next time, thanks for listening. Keep reading, and I wish you the best life imaginable.